0: Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast and following the theme of Britcoiners, I have another British accent, another Britcoiner for you to hear from, author, extraordinaire, comedian, television, celebrity, singer, songwriter, you name it, he's done it, his name is Dominic Frisbee, the book we are concentrating on on this episode is Daylight Robbery. This will take you on the journey through the history of tax. It's a great read. Honestly, go pick it up. I love this interview. Thanks, Dom. We did this one for 21ism. Go and check out 21ism.com. A bunch of brick coiners putting together an amazing website. It's absolutely incredible. Please go check it out. Don't forget, start stacking sats. Do it or start adding to your stack use coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten in the UK use swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten in the US I know you guys are loving these Brit episodes and across Europe use relay R-E-L-A-I dot forward slash bitten and of course take control of these keys get them onto a hardware wallet you can use Bitbox 2 Bitcoin only edition you can find it at shift crypto forward slash bitten and that will get you a five percent discount please go check the website once-bitten.com hit the sponsors tab all of the information is there and some extra little goodies as well from other companies doing great work in the space and you can learn about my book that's choose life i hope you check it out let's get into this episode with dominic frisbee really a great pleasure to have you on dom thanks man enjoy the episode Okay, we are live. Dom, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, Lauren is here, and uh, Hello, Lauren and I are sitting in sitting in for 21ism again, because uh, Dom's the featured writer on uh, the 21ism website. So, Lauren, what is your question to Dom?
2: Okay, so my question is, what is taxes?
1: Well, there, that that's a big question. <laughs> Straight off the bat. I suppose you'd define taxes as money that is taken from you by the government in order for the government to provide all the services that it provides. So the government takes some of your money and it uses it to, you know, pave the roads and build hospitals and and um, build schools and spend money on the army to defend the country and all that kind of thing. So that is what taxes are in very simple terms. But the big argument is how much should we be taxed? How much of your money should be taken and how should it be taken? Should it be taken from your work or should it be taken from your existing wealth Or should it be taken every time you buy and sell something? How should that money be taken? And that's the big question that everyone always argues about. Does that answer your question, Lauren? Yes. Good. Do you ever want to pay taxes?
2: Not really, no. It seems hard.
1: (laughs) It is hard. And there's a big argument, Lauren, because some people say taxation is a form of theft because the money's taken from you without without your permission. Mm. But some people say taxes are the price we pay for a civilized society. And that's the big moral argument. That's the big argument about the good Mm. and bad of taxes.
2: You got me thinking now. Mm. And (laughs) let's
0: not ask Dom about how they um, use inflation as a secret tax to what? people end up paying without even realizing they're paying it mm.
1: that's very surreptitious mm. do you understand inflation has your dad explained inflation yeah to inflation
2: you? is where your money isn't um isn't um how you call it it in value
0: oh right yeah okay so um you purchasing power the, the money
2: yeah
0: you'll put the the purchasing power that your money represents is going down over time. So prices of the things that you want to buy are always going up. Yeah, and your purchasing power is going down.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So in ten years, that fifty euros that you've got stashed away in your purse
2: will be like twenty. What
0: well, year might be the equivalent? It wouldn't be. Well, you never know, right, Dom? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> it you could be know. that low. Yeah. <laughs> so this is why we buy satoshis. Um, but I, Dom's got a very Lauren? cool story.
2: I am 10.
1: Okay. Can you remember, what was the first thing you ever bought?
2: Oh, I haven't Did you buy, like, anything.
1: some Sweeties or a chocolate bar or something when you were three or four? No. Um, uh, well, well, wait,
2: I did buy, actually, something with two euros in... Um, in uh border with like me and Zemi had two euros because we did something okay we bought candy and yeah uh,
1: okay yeah so you bought sweets and stuff yeah yeah okay can you remember like four or five years ago did you get more candy for your money than you do now say you went in with 50p and you went to buy 50p's worth of sweets would you get more sweets five years ago than you do now
2: because now the packets are like lower and mm. like there's like packets like this big and yeah. there's only like that much of it inside so yeah
1: good observation the packets have got smaller the prices have stayed the same but the packets have got smaller and what you've described there that is inflation at work that is your money buying you less every year
2: I remember uh, on one of the podcasts, he was like doing like inflation and he said about the ice cream, like when you go and you pay yeah. and then there's like a big ice cream and then you come back like the next day and it's smaller.
0: That's right. That's Hodlin yeah. explained it to you about, th- that's how he realized how inflation worked as a kid. His ice creams over the years just got less and less.
2: I remember when we the- were in Switzerland, the ice creams were huge. so like <laughs>
0: Well, I want Dom to tell you a, t- a t- tell you a story, which I think the listeners are going to find quite interesting as well. It's a very historical story about um, his book and why it's called what it's called. And he explains why in the book. Now, Daylight Robbery is the name of Dom's book. And could you explain where that saying came from? Because we're all very, very used to using this, this, this terminology. But I think it's a really cool story.
1: I'm going to tell you that story, but I'm going to tell you another story first. and Because this is an ice cream related story. All right. And when I, it would have been in 2013, so you would have been two or three years old, Lauren. um, I went to this festival in Cornwall called the Port Elliot Festival. And there was a very trendy ice cream shop uh, in a little uh, van, uh, like a hipster ice cream van. And it said... And it had lots of lovely ice cream with funky flavors, you know, salted caramel and and, uh, unusual flavors that you didn't used to get. Bubblegum flavor, I remember it had. And he said, accepting Bitcoin on the outside of the van. And my friend said to me, what's Bitcoin? And so I explained to him what it was. And I sent him enough Bitcoin on his phone for us each to buy an ice cream. And then um, the man in the shop, the man selling the ice cream, because it was in the middle of the countryside, in the middle of nowhere in Cornwall, couldn't get a signal on his phone. (laughs) So my friend ended up paying with cash for his own cash for the ice creams instead, and he kept the bitcoins that I'd given him. So remember, this is just two ice creams worth of bitcoin. And then about four or five years later, I got a phone call from my friend, and this was in... um, late 2016 early 2017 i think and it was when bitcoin had a big run and it went to twenty thousand dollars and my friend said hey 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 remember those bitcoins you gave me to buy that ice cream and i said yeah and he said well it was on about three or four phones ago but i managed to find the old phone and i got it working again and i recovered the coins and i sold them and i bought myself a car <laughs> That's the so power of Bitcoin. So those two little ice creams, because he had money that isn't debased by inflation, had turned into a car.
0: That's why you need to stack sets and as many <laughs> as you can.
1: There we go. So daylight robbery. Why is daylight robbery called daylight robbery? Well, um, this goes back to a, an, a tax that they used to have uh, on people in the 1700s where they taxed your windows. So then every, the more windows you had in your house, the more tax you had to pay. And they did this because it was easy to walk past somebody's house and count the number of windows they had. It was a very difficult tax to evade. And they also did it because the more windows you had in your house, the bigger your house was likely to be, and therefore the more money you were likely to have. Mm. But, and this tax worked very well for a little bit, but then it had all sorts of terrible unintended consequences because in order to avoid people paying the tax, people blocked up their windows and they built new houses with no windows at all. And remember in those days that we didn't have electricity and things like that. People, we didn't even have gas lighting. People had to light their houses with candles and by burning rushes. And so for people to lose their daylight completely and just sit in the darkness, that was a big, big sacrifice. And people actually got ill as a result of it. The spread of diseases in the the cities in the Industrial Revolution was made worse because nobody had any fresh air in their houses, or not nobody, but lots of people didn't have any fresh air in their houses. And so the diseases were made worse by these cramped, damp, windowless dwellings. And there was a big campaign to get rid of the tax and when they argued about it in Parliament, the MPs are all purported to have cried daylight robbery because the tax was robbing people of their daylight because they were blocking up their windows. And it's thought that that's where we get the expression daylight robbery from. Cool, huh? Mm-hmm.
0: Now, there's loads of these little stories in your book, Dom. Uh, now, before I get on with the interview, did, did you want to say
1: goodbye? Uh, yes.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Bye.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Have a nice day. <clears throat> Excuse me.
2: Too.
1: Bye. 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 There's so
0: much in the book, mate. It's it's really an incredible piece of work. Um, quite the historian, I would say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm an amateur historian, um, but I did I did do a talk once, and Simon Sharma, the BBC historian, was in the audience. So I challenged him, and in fact, I challenged the whole audience to name me one great event from history that didn't involve a tax story of some kind Um, because the central theory of the book is that everything has happened every great event has happened or has involved some huge untold tax story Um, and he couldn't he he it's... started thinking about it and he started he started to go wars and i went every war was paid for with tax and then he started on revolts every revolt was a re, a, a um, revolt against some kind of tax then he was like um uh, conquest every conquest is about taking control of the tax base the land the labor the produce the profits and then he got on to um like he he did I was so glad he did this because he walked straight into the trap. He said the birth of Christ. And I was like, <laughs> Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem to pay taxes. And then you go from there, you know, the 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 crime for which Jesus was crucified was forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. In other words, telling people not to pay their taxes. And then things like first men on the moon, you know, NASA was a tax funded operation. And then he, st- he, he came in with the plague. He challenged me with the plague. And again, he walked straight into it because there's a whole chapter on the plague. And with natural disasters, you know, there isn't a tax story, you know, like COVID-19, for example, or or the Indonesian tsunami or the plague. There isn't a tax story that caused that event to happen, but the tax story happens afterwards in the way that the aftermath of that crisis is paid for. So, for example, there's the huge tax story in COVID-19 is going to be... how government pays, you know, it's furlough, how government pays for all the, um, how how government's going to pay for it all and bail out the economy. The tax story, you know, with the Great Fire of London is that London was rebuilt on the proceeds of a coal tax. Um, the tax story of the plague, I mean, it's the most wonderful tax story if you survive the plague, was that suddenly the value of a serf's labour was worth a great deal because so many serfs had been wiped out by the Black Death, that serfs were suddenly able to charge for their labor and buy their freedom. And suddenly serfs were holding money for the very first time. And so as a result of that, the leaders started trying to impose all sorts of laws, preventing this upwardly mobile new class. They tried to control the food that they ate, the way that they dressed. <laughs> and um, they were called the Sumptuary Laws. And then eventually they started imposing poll taxes on them and um, those poll taxes led to the peasants' revolt. But the, effectively, the Black Death ended the feudal system. It changed. I mean, it took many years to happen, but but it changed the tax structure of Europe. Tax is the way that leaders rule. They impose their laws by by imposing their taxes. And that's how they they control. Tax as a system of control. And often... Natural disasters will change that. And so afterwards, Simon Sharma came up to me and he was like, do you know what? You're absolutely right. Um, you know, I'd never looked at history in that way. But, but once you do, um, there is not an, ev- uh, an event from history that involves some kind of tax story. So now, now my huge fear is that Simon Sharma is going to nick my idea and there's going to be some series on BBC TV about the history of taxation. And I'm going to be like, that's mine and you stole it off me. But th- <laughs> as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet
0: well we have evidence on this podcast that uh <laughs> this is the the running theme of your book and it is a great book i've been really really enjoying it and there are a few parts that i want to um uh talk to you about Thank and you. the 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 window one was great because all of a sudden it it made me think about the the hundreds of times i've walked around old cities you know london for example and you see some of the buildings where you can still see the the windows have stayed bricked up all of these yeah well
1: they used to build they used to build buildings this is after the tax they would build buildings with the windows bricked in so that that would then give the option it was the option to the person buying the house to knock the window out if they wanted and pay the extra tax so it was like a little you know um and in fact the window tax informed the way western european architecture looks because Mm. there were notches they were called notches but it's a bit like you know, when, you're, when you pay your income tax and if you earn, you know, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's like the first 12 and a half grand is free. And then, then the next, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 grand or whatever it is, you pay 20% tax. And then once you get above whatever it is, 70 grand a year or something, then you start paying, or maybe it's 50 grand, I forget. But the, once you get above a certain threshold, then you start paying 45% tax. So there were these, um, there are these like tiers in the tax system. And the similar thing happened with the windows is, you know, if you had below like naught to 8 windows, you paid one level of tax. And then if you had 8 to 16 windows, you paid another level of tax. So there were these notches. So people would deliberately build buildings to stay one level below the notches. So, of course, what they then did is they changed the notch levels, the <laughs> <laughs> same as the government does today. It changes the level of of of, of, of income tax, you know. The thresholds is the word.
0: Yeah. It's these unintended consequences and the theme of your book is such a great story it's a brilliant it's like a, just following this this journey through history and and I learned so much. Uh so I want to touch on a few and one for our I, US listeners.
1: A, yeah, go on. Go ahead. By the way, in America in Pennsylvania they had the, the, the um, window tax in in, um, in Western Europe, but they never had it in America. Uh, they had it in Fr- I think it, they had it in France till about 1928. It was there till. But in America, in Pennsylvania, there were a load of German settlers. And the president, John Adams, had sent out his men on horseback to, I think they were conducting some sort of census or some kind of investigation for tax purposes but all the German settlers in Pennsylvania thought there was going to they were about to start imposing a window tax (laughs) and so they revolted and it was called the Fry's Rebellion I think it was 1798 but it took um, two years for John Adams to to quell this rebellion because they all were terrified that they just fled the window tax in Europe and they didn't want it imposed on them in this in this new land of Pennsylvania
0: and if I, if i challenge you again uh, uh, as as you had the guy in the audience uh, challenge you our understanding of many of these historic events have been blurred you know history is written by the win- uh, history is written by the winners we all know yeah. that and you bring up in your book the us civil war
1: i do and it's a big subject and i'm i'm surprised more people in america don't talk about this but you know, we don't really study the the US Civil War in England. Um, I don't know why, but we don't. But it's the most written about and studied historical event in America by far and away. And historians still argue over it today. But, and we tend to think the sort of simple narrative is that the Northerners didn't want slavery, and the Southerners did want slavery. And They went and the Southerners tried to succeed and they went to war over it. Now, I forget the exact numbers, but it was several million people killed. And, you know, if the Northerners cared so much about slavery, I always used to ask them, why did they then have, why did segregation come into play? Why were, you know, and then so I started to look at the American Civil War and I stumbled across a couple of articles And you start to realize that the economic structure of America at at that time in the early 1800s was that all the big money was in the cotton plantations of the South, in the agriculture of the South. And they had a very good relationship with the United Kingdom in, um, for example, South Carolina, where they would buy English industrial goods, you know, spades and nails and whatever. And in exchange, they would sell the English cotton and and other agricultural goods, but largely cotton. And it was a very good little trade between um, the southern states of the United States and the United Kingdom, and in fact, the whole of Europe. And so there was a tremendous amount of wealth. But then there was this war, the War of 1812, between the United Kingdom and, and um, uh, the United States. And it actually went on for four years or something and you know i didn't even know that war had happened but during that war the united states realized that they were woefully dependent on british industrial goods for their own survival so it was deemed that they needed to nurture industry in the united states and the southerners all agreed and they started paying these heavy taxes on on the cotton trade and that money was then spent nurturing industry in the north so that so that United States could be independent, not dependent on Western Europe, and then at a certain point, the Southerners said, "Right, you've had enough of our tax now. We don't, well, we don't want to pay you any more." But the Northerners, who quite liked the subsidies that effectively were coming from the South, started saying, "No, no, no. We want more. We want more." And so there were these huge arguments about taxation at the federal level that just got in, increasingly bad over the thirty or forty years from you know 1820 to 1860 and the south was basically sick of subsidizing the north and that was the chief reason why it wanted to succeed it was also frightened that with the expansion of the united states slavery was going to be made illegal in the south and it did want to preserve the institution of slavery in the south because that was its business model but it it was not the sole reason Lincoln was elected and he said, I have no intention of ending slavery in the South. And yet all the same, they want the southern states wanted succession. And then people say, "Ah, well, the southern states fired the first bullet at Fort Sumter. Well, they did. But Lincoln provoked them into doing that because he didn't. He wanted the southern states to fire the first bullet so that he had the excuse by which he could go to war. Um, it, so he deliberately provoked them. And the reason Lincoln was so intent on saving the union was the tax revenue. He wanted to protect union tax revenue. And he knew without the taxes of the southern states, the union couldn't survive. And so I basically make the argument or I tell the untold story between, of the U.S. Civil War, that it was as much as anything about taxes, as mu- easily as much as it was about slavery. And in fact, oh, sorry, this my dog's barking. Um, it's okay. Um, I've just the, the, the somebody's knocked on my door. But I'll just say this before I run an answer, and then we'll just do a quick pause. The yeah. the reason that um, in 1863 the Southern states sent or maybe it was 1864 sent a delegation to the United Kingdom, and they said, if we make slavery illegal, will you recognize the um, the Uh, Southern states as an independent nation. So they were prepared to sacrifice slavery if it gave them their independence. Just one second. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Live
0: podcasting. You got to love it. Dom is returning, ladies and gentlemen. The barking has ceased.
1: I beg your pardon, there was postman at the door.
0: No problem. I,
1: w- I was going to ask was it the tax man? <laughs> no, but it was a tax funded operation or a, previous, a once tax funded operation.
0: <laughs> okay, so that, the US Civil War, yeah, that blew me away because you, you, you're totally correct. Anything that I'd ever learned about the US Civil War was all about slavery. And then you bring up this this whole tax thing. And then you, you also
1: talk about the, uh, the Revolutionary Wars, like um, uh, independence. Yeah, well, that's more famously about taxation, no taxation without representation. And mm-hmm. the English were stupidly imposing all sorts of, of silly and petty taxes. And it wasn't so much the amount that they were taxed. It was the imposition of the taxes into people's private lives. And, um, you know, the Americans were like, if we're going to pay these taxes, we want representation in UK Parliament. And they were quite right. And the funny thing was, is they weren't fighting for new rights. They were fighting for rights that they felt were enshrined um, in Magna Carta, which was another <laughs> tax revolt against King John. Um, and I think the English regarded the America as another colony um you know, like perhaps India or, or one of the African colonies, it had a slightly contemptuous view of all the colonies. And the Americans were like, no, we have, we have rights. We are our own men. But the French Revolution was again, you know, a, a, a revolt against economic injustice perpetrated by too many and too burdensome and too imposing taxes. The Russian Revolution was the same. And in fact, the Philippine Revolution, uh, began with the cry of Pugad Lawin, exhorting citizens to tear up their tax certificates. And um, you know, there's all when 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 the peasants' revolt came, every single, all the peasants everywhere they went, they went into wherever the um, tax records were kept, which was often in the um, in the churches, but often in the league in the legal offices, um, and they just burnt them all. So that was part of the revolt. Part of the plan of the revolt was systemically destroying all tax records. And uh, um, then they would go to the prisons and free all the prisoners, most of whom were in there for non-payment of taxes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was another uh, very interesting piece of history with Wat Tyler, um, which, uh, you know... I'd visited the National Park many times. I had no idea of who he was or where he came from. Uh, you know, being an Essex boy myself, uh, that was a very interesting um, story. But you mentioned there the Walter Magna the Carta. Walter the Tyler, exactly. But that's another.
1: Walter the Tyler. And uh, he was a Tyler of roofs and a low person. And the, the, the funny thing is, 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 you know, he's got his surname, Watt Tyler. But he's got that surname because that was his job, Tyler. And, you know, you might have a job. Many people are named after their profession, Smith, Taylor, Tyler. Um, And again, we have surnames. They go all the way back to those poll taxes of the 12 and 1300s, where people were given surnames in order to identify them for the purposes of collecting taxes. That's the only reason we have surnames. So you would distinguish Walter the Tyler from Walter who lived by the hill you know, you'd, you'd either distinguish them by their profession, by a geographical um, uh, feature uh, uh, where they live. You know, Walter by the Ford, Walter Ford or Walter Hill, or uh, by their who their dad was, what their family was, Walter Jackson. And 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 those are the three dominant names. They were often named after in Celtic cultures, people would be named after their um, uh defining physical characteristics as well so something like kennedy means shaggy hair and cameron means crooked nose um but yeah those were the the reasons why we have surnames distinguishing people for the purposes of collecting poll taxes and this originated in in ancient china did it not it did you've you've done your homework we did it in western europe but the the chinese had done it long before but for exactly the same reason
0: and you bring this up in your book as well that tax is as old as civilization
1: uh it is there has never been a civilization without taxation of some kind there have been civilizations civilizations where taxation was voluntary but yeah uh, the very first taxes the oldest written records we have are tax records the very first hieroglyphs um they were a bit like early tokens on the blockchain in a funny kind of way. Um, Mm -hmm. People would uh, bake bits of mud. So a bit of, because you weren't in those days, we didn't have money. We didn't have coinage. Um, So taxes were taken in labor or they were taken in a a share of your produce, the old tithe, Uh, the tithe predates Christianity. But yeah, they would bake, you know, so you'd have a disc would represent a sheep or a cone would represent a measure of barley and they would be baked inside these clay balls. And then when the debt was settled, they'd smash open the clay ball. And then they found it was actually uh, quicker and more efficient to inscribe the clay balls with pictures of the tokens. And um, and so did the first systems of handwriting develop hieroglyphs and the very first tax collectors were people who measured, who mastered this new art of writing. So the ancient tax collectors were the scribes. <laughs> but it's probable, mm-hmm. you know, even in this idea of a sense of duty to the greater collective, as it will have existed, I'm sure, in the in the hunter-gatherer societies um, that predated civilization. You have your sort of hierarchy of needs, and the first thing you need to do is, is you know, make sure... The first thing you need to do is ensure your own survival, and then the next thing you do is ensure the survival of your family, uh, and in doing that, you're ensuring the survival of the of the human race, and um, and but and taxation. This sense of duty to the to the greater collective is part of that.
0: And you also bring up the Rosetta Stone as well as uh, a tax document.
1: It was it was a tax. It was one of the reasons we historians love the Rosetta Stone so much is it was written in several different languages um, and it's enabled people to understand the different languages because you just need to speak one in order to be able to understand what the other two meant Um, but the reason it was written in all those different languages is it was and and written in a way that would last is that it was a tax treaty and um, it the the people writing it it was the greek rulers in egypt wanted as many people reading the stone as possible to understand it so it was a bit like an nhs document that you get today that's written in 53 different languages so that everyone you know all the multiple <laughs> people uh, reading it can understand it but at the bottom line it was a t- it was um it was a tax document. Historians often go when they're studying an ancient society. One of the first places they look is is the tax records, because for obvious reasons, it's government revenue. They tend to be the best preserved documents.
0: And can we touch on the Magna Carta as well? Because these are these are two huge parts of of history that uh, so much has been built on uh could you just tell for the for the listeners that aren't exactly sure haven't done that history haven't had that history lesson what the what the magna carta is how it became to be and um again probably another great theme in your book the unintended consequences of of all of these things that happen
1: sure well um i'm sure everyone's familiar with the story of robin hood and uh robin hood was fighting the sheriff of nottingham who was excessively taxing the poor, and this all happened under the rule of King John, who was who followed in the line of of his um, of his family. I think Richard the Richard the Lionheart was his brother, but between them, they were some of the most ruthless ca- tax collectors in all history. And the reason is is they they kept. Um, taxing the the english richard the lionheart was a terrible king we we sort of because his name's lionheart we see him as a good king but in his 10-year rule he was six months in the united kingdom in england and nine and a half years of his rule he spent abroad and he was forever in france and going on crusades and making war in the crusades and so on and fighting saladin and to pay for all these wars they levied these huge um taxes uh on the english and um under the pretext of going on these highly important crusades to spread the word of God. <laughs> but the um, King John was his successor, and he just imposed tax after tax after tax. And sheriffs would win these licences to collect taxes, and he charged fortunes for these licences. And, and the Sheriff of Nottingham would have been one of those who obtained one of those licences. And because they paid so much for the licences, the sheriffs would then you know go and squeeze the people for everything they could and in order to evade paying the taxes um, you would either have to pay them or you would become an outlaw and that's where the tradition and the only place the outlaws could go was to go and hide in the woods and so that's what Robin Hood and his merry men did and um so that was the sort of the, the dynamic at the time and eventually the barons who were there were three main power sources in the in the country at the time, the king, the crown, the barons, and the church. And eventually the barons said, No, this is too much. And it remember, it's a very brave thing to do because the king at that time was God. You know, he wasn't just a king, he was God. And you were taking on God, which is <laughs> takes quite a lot of bravery. And so the barons went to war with the crown, and they said, you know, you've got to stop this. And Eventually, they agreed a treaty on the banks of the River Thames, Magna Carta, the Great Charter, that uh, the king wouldn't impose these taxes and certain freedoms were were men's by their own right. And everyone agreed to this treaty and the barons promised they wouldn't take London and the king promised he wouldn't, um, he would meet certain obligations. And then, of course, within about a week, everyone had broken all the agreements, and the barons took London. And the King John went to the Pope and and had the Pope excommunicate all the barons. <laughs> and then, but then eventually, so the barons' war took place. So the the charter was agreed, and nobody adhered, stood stood by it. And then we had the barons' war. And at this point, King John died, but it wasn't he wasn't killed fighting. It was like dysentery that took him. And so the new king was, uh, uh, I forget if it was Henry or Richard, I think it was Henry, um, but he was only like eight or nine years old. So he had this chap, William Marshall, was his um, protector. And William Marshall was a famously loyal knight. He'd ridden under four or five um Kings, and he was still riding into the battle at the ripe old age of seventy. Can you imagine riding into battle at the age no. of seventy? But he was, he was a tremendous man. And but when he saw that he was leading the crown's forces, a lot of the barons went over onto the crown side because they admired William Marshall so much. And um, eventually, the barons lost the war. Um, so uh, after uh, William Marshall had defeated the rebel barons, he needed a charter. He needed a a treaty that everyone could agree to. So he revived the old charter, the Magna Carta, that had been abandoned two or three years ago. And everyone agreed to it at the Treaty of Lambeth. And and all Marshall's allies were saying, this treaty is too generous to the losers. Um, But Marshall recognised probably that the crown had been taxing too heavily. And so Magna Carta became law. And it's one of those things. It's just... The the magic of that document is, you know, the narrative, the story around it is probably greater than the document itself. Um, I think only about most of the agreements were abandoned over the next few hundred years fairly, fairly quickly. I think there's like one agreement or something that's still law today. But the magic, the this idea that, you know, men had certain rights, free men had certain rights remained in people's heads and this is what the american revolutionaries of of uh 17 of the late 17th uh, of the late 18th century fought they were fighting for they fought they were fighting for the right their rights enshrined in in magna carta many years before
0: yeah it's a really interesting story and what what i what i found myself doing was looking back through all of these these stories that you tell through the book And think to myself, oh my God, did they have it bad back then? Oh, well, that's never going to happen in our time. And then you think, hang on a minute, we're all locked up in our houses. We're not allowed to go out. We're not allowed to, you know, freely move anywhere. We are under some form of imprisonment. And depending on where you live in the world, taxes can be as high as, well, you tell me, Dom, you know, Give me a well, few country examples. There's,
1: there's two. I mean, life is a lot better today than it was for the medieval serf, And in fact, one of the things we, <laughs> you know, life is probably better today for the ordinary working man than it was for Marie Antoinette, you know, who famously said, let them eat cake mm-hmm. in, the, in the French Revolution. Um, in the sense that we've got, you know incredible transport, we've got the internet, we've got our houses are warm, we've got running water, we've got electricity, um, you know, sewage systems, wonderful food from all over the world. So in that sense, our lives are much better. But the essential contract, it wasn't even a contract of the serf, and the serfs were probably the descendants of the Roman slaves, it's thought. But the essential um, contract of the serf, was that he was was part of the land. So whoever the lord was that owned that land owned the serfs. And he would give the serfs a little plot of land to work on themselves. But the serf had to give three days of their working week, they would have to work their lord's land, and the other three days they could work their own land and keep whatever they produced. So three days were given to their ruler, and three days they kept for themselves, and then Sundays they got off. <laughs> and that was their working week so effectively that was a 50% tax rate now if you look at the way we're taxed today um you know t- taxation as a as a percentage of gdp throughout the western world is around the 50% mark and in fact it's more if you include taxation via inflation and you know higher rate income tax might only be 40 or 45 percent but by the time you've paid VAT and and um, you know council tax and fuel taxes and alcohol and cigarette taxes and all the various there's no activity that doesn't involve some taxation of some kind by the time you've paid all these taxes you know the tax burden sits at around 50 percent of GDP a little bit less America's a bit less and France is a bit more but essentially it's it's half of everything you own is taken from you by the government and over the course of your lifetime you will spend roughly 25 years (laughs) in unpaid labor that i mean that's an astonishing when you look at it that time and yes and and the 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 status will turn around and say well it's not unpaid because you get um health care and education and whatever and then the libertarian will say, "Yeah, but the healthcare and the education aren't very good." And and uh, you know, if I was able to keep that money myself, I could spend it much better than the government does, and the healthcare I was receive would be cheaper and better. Um, but you know, that's most political arguments are essentially a political argument about which percentage of GDP, what percentage of GDP should be taxed and what shouldn't. But essentially, that contract where you keep half, you own half your own labor, is the same as as the serf. Now. In a totalitarian state, North Korea or somewhere, it's not 50%. It's 100% of your labor is owned. And in an anarchy, 0% of your labor is owned. Um, but, you know, so the social democracies of today sit halfway way between the two. So in one sense, we're freer than we ever have been because of we're empowered because of this wonderful technology that we have. But in the other sense, we are we are no more free than the medieval surf <laughs> it's it,
0: it's shocking isn't it to think of it that way
1: it, it really is and you know I like to I, I, I it winds people up when you talk through this prison but I like to do it which is rather than Because there is this sort of sense of entitlement, particularly on the authoritarian left, that feels that if somebody has a lot of money, other people are entitled to it. And I think that's born out of capitalist economies where a lot of people, or I should say crony capitalist economies, where a lot of people have made their money through some, not through some brilliantly entrepreneurial scheme, but by manipulating some kind of legislation so that it suits them. I think I've lost you there, Daniel. You're back. Yeah. I lost you for a moment. Yeah. um, And because, you know, particularly in Western Europe, so many fortunes are made through crony capitalism. I think that sort of fosters this sense of resentment and entitlement. But nevertheless, um, I like to frame arguments about taxation in the how much of your own labor do you uh, do you own how much of yourself do you own and how much does the government own because once once you look at it like that um, the extent to which government has permeated our lives becomes more clear
0: yeah it has mate and th- there was another thing I was um, sharing with my wife last night the UK house prices that you Put in the book and sorry if I'm if, if you need to flick to the page to find the exact percentage number that they've risen since 1939 that completely blew me away it was uh, you, you give I think you give like a 650 year period of house prices I think inflating at like annualized 0.4% all the way up until 1939 from the 1200s or something and then the percentage increase from 1939 until present day is astounding and that will lead us into the money printing argument and the 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 inflation and the effect that that has on society
1: yeah i mean prices the uk went was on a gold standard until 1914 and then we came off the gold standard to print for the uh, to print um, the money to pay for the first world war. And then we went back on the gold standard in 1925, but the rate at which we went back onto the gold standard was too high. It was, we went back on at the previous rate and it didn't take account of all the money that had been printed. We should have gone back on at a different rate. Uh, and So we came off again in 1932 and we've been off a gold standard ever since. And the, uh, that was 1933. Prices in the UK have risen every year since 1933, (laughs) every (laughs) single year. They haven't gone down once. That's amazing. The only, the only year they didn't go up was 2009 after the global financial crisis. And so that prices in the UK are now 60 times higher than they were in 1934 now it's ridiculous if you think in the nine, in the 1800s under the gold standard prices actually fell over that century things got cheaper and things should get cheaper because people get better at making them and you know china as the the cost of a worker in china is so low and we're able thanks to globalization we're able to buy chinese goods and so we're paying Chinese prices, and but because of that, that's enabled them to fiddle the numbers and say that inflation is low. It just isn't. It's just not properly measured. And so, yeah, um, it's a it's a racket, and it's it's unbacked money, and the the most. Perhaps the most insidious manifestation of it has been in house prices. It's been terrible. It really doesn't cost a lot of money to build a house. It, you can build a magnificent. You, you can buy a flat-pack uh, three-bed house, two thousand square feet, timber-framed, online for thirty grand. But if you actually bought that house with the land in a reasonable location, it's going to cost ten or twenty or thirty times that. You know, a 2,000 square foot three bed house in a reasonable location close to London or something, it's going to cost you over a million quid. It costs 30 grand to build it. You know, so it's just, it's all come from debt. People think the reason house prices in the UK are so um, expensive because we don't build enough and we probably don't build enough. But the reason, like if you look at... um, uh, house prices between 1997 and 2007, over that 10-year period, um, the population grew by 5%, but the housing stock grew by 10%. So over that period, house prices should have fell if it was purely a function of supply and demand. Population's up 5%, house prices... But they didn't. They trebled. So the house price... There were more houses, property built than there there was, than the population grew by. And yet house prices trebled. And then you look at the money supply and the money supply trebled over the same period as well. And that's because a lot of newly created money goes into mortgages and that pushes up house prices. And it's just a it's such a terrible, terrible racket. And then you look at house prices measured in in Bitcoin. (laughs) and it's a very different story you get house prices measured in house prices you know a house is a depreciating asset i know like antique houses look beautiful and sometimes they can get more beautiful in time but it it requires huge expense to maintain and it should be like cars they should fall in value every year and you take an ordinary victorian terraced terraced house that was built to house you know railway worker or something and now that same house is like houses, you know, a top barrister, one of the most educated people in the country. And, and it costs, I don't even know how many multiples higher, 50, a hundred times more. And you're like, why can we not build beautiful Victorian houses to, to house ordinary, you know, an NHS worker or a teacher or something? It's, it's just such, and it's, it's people think they're getting rich on the back of property and many people are, but it's such a terrible thing we've done to ourselves. And it's so it's such a waste of money. It's and it's it's it like it's the if you have a plot of land uh, without planning permission, like a field or something, it'll be worth about fifteen grand. Once it's got planning permission, it's worth like a million quid. And you're like, that million quid is purely a cost of government. It's a form of tax. And then you look at the map of the UK, and I'll ask you a question. Do you know how much? What percentage of the UK? Um, is built on.
0: I do because I've read your book, but I will let you tell the listeners. Okay. Well, people will <laughs> often get 10% me.
1: or something like that. It's 4% of the UK is built on, and that includes roads. If you take off roads, it's only 2% of the UK is built on, and the percentage of the UK that has residential property on it is 1%. It's 1% of the UK has residential property on it. And if you go on Google Maps and you look at the UK as a whole the whole thing's green there's a few cities but the whole thing's green and that's because it's not built on (laughs) and there's room for new cities anyway it's such a terrible situation that everyone's created and yet no government will let the housing market fall because they don't want a house price crash on their watch half of them have got buy to let portfolios half of them just know that a house price crash or they think it will make them unelectable we got a house price crash for the Tories between 1989 and 1994 and they didn't get elected again for 20 years or 15 years um so they just won't allow a house price crash there's too much money tied up in it but a house price crash would be the best but Dom, thing that could happen to young people
0: absolutely it would and you know that that point that you make about the the amount of land that's been built on the uk this is something i've been like saying to my wife like uh you know this narrative that you get out of the uk especially oh we're so overpopulated that's why there are so many traffic jams everywhere you can't move you can't go anywhere because i'm like i don't know about you but every time we fly in there's a lot of green fields or like patchwork fields depending on the um the, the, the time of year you're flying in my god you fly across france mate pure countryside like th- there's it's unbelievable amounts of empty space so this narrative of being overrun and overpopulated is such nonsense
1: yeah and um you know france and if in fact to the french's credit they don't have the same house price bubble that we do they do in certain parts but you can pick up property in france very cheap actually you can pick up property in the uk very cheap but it's just in areas where nobody wants to live um but the if you look at, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, like these COVID vaccines, they've they've done a very good job, and suddenly they're running that very efficiently, because that's because so much is staked on it. But on the whole, the NHS is so inefficient, and you know, prior to COVID, our transport system, you know, the tube in the morning was horrendous, and the road, <laughs> you know, there's too much traffic on the roads in the in the morning, and um, you know, the, the ratio of pupil to teacher in the school is, is not good enough, in my opinion, in the state schools. So, but but these are all services that government provides that can't cope with the increased numbers because the incentives are all wrong. If you look at, you know, supermarkets, they don't mind immigration at 10%. In fact, they're happy with immigration at 10% because they can sell more stuff and you know they'll expand quickly expand to meet the changing demand so what can cope with high levels of immigration and population growth is the free market what can't cope with it is the government and government welfare and government systems and this is why milton friedman made that argument and i think it's one i totally agree with um You cannot have open borders and free immigration and an expansive welfare state. You have to choose. Do you want an expansive welfare state, expensive government, um, or do you want open borders? Because, and you make that choice in your, you know, in your government policy, but you can't have both.
0: So Don we've we've been looking back at history of tax which has been uh, an incredible journey but you also touch in your book about the future and what you see happening so let's uh, let's get a look at what you think is going to be playing out over the next 10 to 15 years of how our governments are going to react to the change in the workplace the change in our lifestyles the change in um social demographics
1: I think it's really, really interesting. And um, there's all sorts of dynamics in play and COVID has accelerated a lot of them. The one thing that COVID is... I, I saw us travelling a lot more than is currently possible because of COVID. And I saw the rise of the digital nomad. And, uh, you know, it's Reese Mogg's sovereign individual. And we're definitely going to see this two-tier economy arise where, and I think by the way, many nation states as we now know them will disappear over the next 50 years. We tend to think of, of countries like Germany and Italy, and we just think they've been there forever. Well, they haven't, they're only 200 years old. America's only 250 years old. Many nation states as we now know them are relatively new in the context of history. And they all were built up around the industrial revolution And tax systems designed around a physical economy, which was easy to tax goods going from A to B, physical goods, physical land, physical worker going from A to B, going to work for one company, you know, for 10 or 15 years in that same place. You the company collects the workers tax and pays it to the government. Easy. That is the tax structure our tax systems are built around this physical economy and they have not adapted to the rise of the digital economy. And so at the moment, it's most clear in companies, international globalized companies, especially in tech, but also companies like Starbucks or, but Google and Apple and wherever. And they've got so many different operations in so many different countries and they just run rings around the tax man. They're like, well, we don't, you know, that money's not made in this country. It's made in this country. And and it's made in the country where the corporation tax is really low. And so that's why you have a situation with like me, ordinary Dominic Frisbee, paying more tax than Facebook <laughs> in the UK last year. And are you telling me that, uh, that Facebook didn't earn more money than me? Uh, but it, it paid less tax than I did. And so... But what's happening is at the moment, government tax systems uh, are 50% of government revenue around the world comes from income tax. And income tax has been an easy tax to collect. But the nature of work is changing. And more and more workers are going into the digital economy. They're not working for one company. They're working for multiple companies. They're becoming freelancers. There's contingent workers, the rise of the gig economy. And already it's been proven that a worker... In, in a fixed job and a, and a gig economy worker, two, both doing the same job, the gig economy worker will pay much lower levels of tax. Sometimes it's deliberate non-compliance, it's fraud, sometimes it's just incompetence, sometimes it's just because he finds more things to write off against it. But taxation after the event from freelance workers is harder to collect than it is um, deduction at source from paid workers. And But as more and more of these workers start uh, working remotely, which COVID has accelerated, and more and more people are doing multiple jobs, and then with remote working, I can now start doing jobs for people in other countries much more easily. And then I start to think, well, actually, why should I stay in the UK? Why don't I go to Greece? Greece wants, you know, house prices are uh, a quarter of the price in Greece that they are in the UK. I can have a much better lifestyle for a much lower income. I'm gonna go and live in Greece uh greece is trying to attract people all you have to do is buy a house in greece it's trying to attack workers or portugal's doing the same i had a conversation with my solicitor this has happened twice in the last week actually i had a conversation with my solicitor and um who's like runs a city center firm and i had a conversation where are you um because i didn't recognize the background on his zoom call and he was like oh i'm in my house in the south of france and i said well how long have you been there and he said i well i came here last march and and this is like a city lawyer is is conducting his business from his house in Provence, and then I had phoned up my voiceover agent. This is two days ago, and it, and I could just hear this. I said, like, "Where are you?" And there was this awkward pause, and then he just went, "Switzerland." And I'm like, "Well, what are you doing there?" And he was like, "Well, this, the lockdown came on January the fifth, and I rented out. We we saw it was coming, so we rented out our house." They've got a big house in the country to some city folk who wanted to escape London for the lockdown. And then he took his family and they've all been skiing in the mountains since January. And and so people are t- and, and nobody would know. <laughs> it was only because I said, where are you? And so this ability to conduct business from another country is going to accelerate the movement of workers and businesses to low tax jurisdictions. And governments, meanwhile, are taking on these extraordinary obligations. Um, I mean, existing obligations towards welfare are incredible as it is, but they're only going to grow as a result of COVID. And it's going to be, get harder and harder to tax the digital economy. And so the physical economy is going to pay the price. So this two-tier world that Rhys-Mogg describes in The Sovereign Individual of of you know, this heavily burdened populace that can't leave, and then this mobile individual that can leave, well, that's, that's the way that taxes are going. And those countries that best adapt to the realities of the new digital economy around us will be those countries that do best. And those countries that keep on burdening their people with too much taxation, resorting to inflation, are going to be the ones that struggle. And ultimately, the governments that do less and leave more to the free market will be the nations that survive this best. And the nations that keep trying to do more and basically spend more than they take in will be the nations that die a death. And so I think, You know, many nation states, as we now know them, just won't exist. Uh, There's this big trend towards more localised everything at the same time anyway. You know, Catalonia wants independence. Britain voted for Brexit. Now Scotland wants independence. You know, there's an argument that London should be independent from the rest of the UK. And you just keep following that. And, you know, there's loads of Bitcoiners who are talking about citadels. And these citadels might be in places where energy is cheap you know, currently very underpopulated, but the energy there is very cheap. So Bitcoin mining operations set up there. And then gradually, you know, there are low, the cities as we now know them were built around industry. And in many cases, you get cities around where there's rich in mines or rich in factories or whatever. And the same thing, people will graduate to these low energy jurisdictions where there's Bitcoin mining operations because of all the wealth that gets created there. And the big question that you know the many of these citadels might end up being you know little independent micronations. and then the big question that people whoever the designers of these micronations, need to ask this is why this taxation is so important a subject now is how do we want to you know you design a society the way that you tax it so these independent citadels that are slowly going to rise up or already maybe it'll suddenly happen quickly in the event of hyper bitcoinization but they're going to have to ask themselves what kind of society do we want because you design a society by the way you tax it
0: yeah it's it's exactly what i see playing out as well and he, yeah you reference the book the sovereign individual which many of the bitcoin community have read or are currently rereading or reading for the first time and looking at it and thinking wow they've, they've called a, a lot of this uh, and you just see this natural movement as well um, yeah it's... By the well way, with there's your there's a really
1: funny article there's a really good art S- sorry daniel there's a if for, if you're interested in that book there's a really good summary of that book if you type type guardian sovereign individual that's been done by some guy in the guardian and he really tries to attack the narrative of the sovereign individual he really goes for it and the funny thing is in doing so he actually summarizes the book really well saves you having to read the whole thing you can just read this guardian article and it's just really easy to see you know what's invective and what's actually quite good and and so it's one of those bizarre things in attacking it in attacking it he actually makes that life <laughs> that much more desirable but if you find if you type in guardian sovereign individual you'll find it it's worth reading
0: I'll look out for it, for sure. Well, we touched on Bitcoin there, which is a brilliant place um, to ask you the question I ask every guest uh, towards the end of the show. If you had one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to and why?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. There's this... um... I guess you have to give it to the person who has the most power because then it has the greatest effect. And so in that case, in the UK, it would be Boris Johnson um, or, or or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, whoever it is. Um, and I guess you'd have to go Biden or Harris. I mean, you wonder how effective either of those two really are and whether they're just sort of puppets controlled by a bigger machine, but whoever So whoever Rasputin is in America, we need to give him the orange pill, I guess. Um, But the uh, in um, in in the UK, I guess you'd say Boris Johnson. But I just believe that man is so bereft of any kind of real ideology. I just think he's just got the gift of saying whatever he needs to say in any given moment that even if you did orange pill him, he'd he'd find a way of, of changing the orange pill to green or blue or black the next week anyway so I wonder how effective it would be
0: <laughs> yes reverse alchemy Boris oh, yeah. Johnson would be the uh the absolute master of that for sure
1: all right Dom Maybe, well this has I'm, been I'm such a go, great so interview I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an answer I'm gonna give it to Ursula van der Leyen okay
0: you're gonna have to explain who she is
1: I'm oh, sorry she's <laughs> like head of the EU which is oh, like the okay. most anti-bitcoin technocratic institution there is. Now that would be a worthy pill, one hundred percent.
0: All right, mate. This has been uh, a great, a uh, great interview. Great to get to know you. Really appreciate uh, all of the work you do because I know you were uh, you write for Money Week and um, sometimes uh, Independent, or Guardian, and you're you've been beating the drum about Bitcoin. I think you released your first bitcoin book in 2013.
1: 2014 is written in 2013 but released in 2014. Right. And you, I think it's the first book you've on done bitcoin so much. from a recognised publisher. Is that right? I think so. I mean there were books on bitcoin before me but they were all like self-published stuff.
0: Right, cool. And I'm also about a third of the way into your book, um, Life After the State, as well, which I'm finding very, very oh, interesting and thought provoking.
1: So, that was my, my a big early, thanks. My early work. A, a big thanks
0: from me personally and uh, on behalf of the community. Thank you for taking the time this morning. And um, thanks. Uh, I, I look forward to doing this again one day.
1: Yeah, me too. And thanks very much for having me, Daniel. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Okay, guys, what do you think of that? What a journey through history. Now, Mrs. Prince doesn't generally listen back to any of my podcasts, but I put this one on in a car and she was absolutely riveted by it. So if that helps you get your spouse to listen to this one, I think it's just such a great journey through history to help you understand where all of this started and how tax has been at the cornerstone of every significant point in history. I mean, what a great kind of discovery to, to, to notice that and to write a book about it. It's brilliant. It's a great book. Go check it out. And uh, reach out to Dom on Twitter as well. You'll find him, Dominic Frisbee. You'll find him all over the internet. Go check out his webpage. My goodness, this guy's done some, done some stuff in his past. And don't forget, this was in conjunction with 21ism go and find those guys brilliant brick coiners putting together an amazing project online they're up to block six already and block seven will be dropping next month with new featured guests they look at the written word they look at memes they look at art they look at video they've got everything covered and it's a really brilliantly designed website brought to you by hodler than thou and gang before i sign off don't forget check out the show sponsors that's coinfloor.co.uk it's swanbitcoin.com it's relay.ch all forward slash bitten and it's shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten as well thanks for listening guys catch you on the next one